January 17, 2008. British Airways Flight 38, a Boeing 777, is on final approach in a London Heathrow airport after a 10 and a half hour flight from Beijing. 136 passengers and 16 crew members are on board, and so far this flight has been uneventful. The flight path took the plane over Mongolia, Siberia, and Scandinavia on its way into the United Kingdom. Now, two miles from the airport and at an altitude of 720 feet, something is amiss. The plane's autothrottle is trying to get more power from the engines, but the engines are not responding. The plane slows down to 124 miles per hour and is now in danger of stalling. The co-pilot takes manual control at 150 feet of altitude and tries to fully engage the throttle, but the engines still do not respond. The plane slams into the ground 890 feet short of runway 27 left at London Heathrow Airport. What happened to cause one of the safest planes in the world to crash so close to its destination? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. So Chris, here we are, episode eight. Do you feel like uh, you've learned a lot? I've learned a lot about crashing planes, uh, not necessarily about flying them. So because you've learned <laughs> what not to do. Yes, I've learned, <laughs> I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, but I, 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 don't, I don't know if I would trust myself w- with the controls of a plane yet. No, no, you've never even talked about what the cockpit looks like. <laughs> no. Yeah, this is this is not a and it's it's all audio license. only, so it's like I'm having to visualize it. I've never even even as a kid, I don't think I was one. I was like, hey, do you want to go see what the, the cockpit looks like? I don't think I even did that. <laughs> I wonder if they still do that. I don't know. I I bet they don't. Probably could be, there was yeah. a there was another incident. Maybe we'll cover this in a future episode. There was an incident uh, for an aeroflight in uh, Russia where the pilot let his kids sit at, in the chair at the controls while they were flying, uh-huh. and the kid accidentally disengaged the autopilot and crashed the plane. Oh, I think I heard about that. Yeah, that's a terrible one. Uh, but that's not this episode. <laughs> this episode. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> we're about <laughs> British Airways Flight 38. Uh, like I said, it's a Boeing 777. It was flying from Beijing, China, to London Heathrow uh, Airport in the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. Uh, like I said, there were a total of 152 people on the plane, so 16 crew members and 136 passengers. And the crew consisted of Captain Peter Burkill, who was 43 with uh, just about 13,000 flight hours, actually 12,700 flight hours. Uh, Senior First Officer John Coward, 41, with 9,000 flight hours. And First Officer Connor McGinnis, I hope I say that right, who was 35 with 5,000 flight hours. The plane was a Boeing 777, had its first flight May 18, 2001. So it was almost seven years old. Uh, Started with British Airways May 31st, 2001. And it was powered by two Rolls Royce Trent engens. Royal Royce Roll. I can't say that. <laughs> say Royce it again. Rolls Rolls. Don't they? Ro- but they Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. <laughs> but so they make cars and plane engines. Yeah, uh, there's uh, only a couple of manufacturers who make uh, plane engines. I mm-hmm. think the two biggest that you'll find are probably Rolls Royce and GE. Uh, Pratt and Whitney also does some uh, plane engine manufacturing, but it's pretty standard. If you look out the window of a plane, uh, lots of times you'll see a Rolls Royce emblem on the side of the engine. Hmm. So That's next cool. time you're on, take a look. Hmm. So I wanted to do a, a quick side tangent here. I don't know if you noticed, but I, I mentioned that there was a, a captain and two first officers. Yeah, I was wondering about that. This was like. Yeah, I was like, I thought I misheard you. It's like, oh, wait, because there's you've said before there's a captain, first officer, and then there's like the engineer. But this is later. Right. This is a a newer plane. Yeah. So what happens is when there's long distance travel, they'll have multiple uh, pilots and first officers like this just so that they can rotate out to kind of help fight fatigue. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but on big planes like this, there's actually crew compartments where crew can sleep. Like there's like little beds Hmm. for them to like take a rest, take a nap. 
Uh, and it, it varies depending where it is on different planes. It can be located at the very back of the plane, or sometimes it's just behind the cockpit. Uh, if, you, if you're ever on a big plane, you know, on a transoceanic flight, you can take a look. Sometimes you'll see like a door with like a little lock on it. You'd be like, oh, that's probably where it is. We'll post some photos of what they look like on uh, social media, on Twitter and Instagram, if you follow Black Box Down Pod. But uh, it's not very big, not very luxurious, but they do at least have a bed. That way you know gotcha. that they get rest and they're not going to be fatigued because this was a 10 and a half hour flight. Yeah, that's pretty long. Yeah, so when they take off uh, or before they take off, they do a debrief and they determine who's going to take off, who's going to fly, you know, when they're going to change, who's going to land. And they divide the flight up into uh, shifts and they take turns during the flight. Gotcha. Okay, so flight 38, which is, you know, this flight that we're, here, we're talking about here, was flying over, you know, some pretty cold areas. It's in January, right? It flew over Mongolia, Siberia, Scandinavia, between 34,800 feet and 40,000 feet. So pretty high. The outside air temperature at these altitudes. Okay, so this is going to be a little confusing. We're going to I'm going to give temperature readings in both Celsius and Fahrenheit. Okay. Okay. So apologies. The outside air temperature at these altitudes vary between negative 65 Celsius and negative 74 Celsius, which is negative 85 Fahrenheit and negative 101 Fahrenheit. So it's really cold. Yeah, that's super super. That's like freeze your finger. Right. Like when you, you, you do not. You do, you do. You do not want to roll down the window and stick your finger out. <laughs> So the crew, you know, is, is aware of these temperatures and they keep an eye on the temperature of the fuel. The, the fuel never dropped below negative 34 Celsius, which is negative 29 Fahrenheit. And depending on the kind of fuel they were using, the freezing point is either negative 40 or negative 47 Celsius. So the fuel was cold, but it was not anywhere near the freezing point of fuel. Gotcha. Just want to point that out here real fast. Uh, the crew, you know, everything was fine. Very uneventful flight. They did not notice a loss in power until they were really low. They were about 720 feet off the ground and two miles away from touchdown. The autopilot was in ILS mode, which stands for instrument landing system. And it was following a glide slope down to the runway. So basically the ILS lets the plane know the correct slope it needs to be taken in order to land on the runway. And the plane would follow it automatically since it was an autopilot, right? Yeah. So it's just, it just knows it's like an invisible line that it's following just to, yeah. to do like the perfect landing. Well, for some reason, during this approach, the engines failed to respond to a demand for increased thrust from the autothrottle in order to try to stay on the glide slope. So, you know, the autopilot's trying to increase engine power to stay on that slope for that perfect landing, mm -hmm. but it, it's not getting the power that it requests. So the autopilot sacrifices speed and it reduces it to 108 knots, which is about 124 miles an hour at, uh, when they're at 200 feet in altitude. And it doesn't, like, the pilots don't notice this or it's not, oh. it doesn't alert them or... Oh, yeah, they, they, they become aware of it right around this time. Because at about 150 feet, which is you know, just right after that, the co-pilot, John Coward, uh, he felt his stick shaker operate. Uh, so the stick shaker warns him of a potential stall. Like, it basically rattles the controls to let them know that they're in, they're in danger of stalling. Hmm. So he pushes forward on his control column to disengage the autopilot, and he takes manual control. The captain had to try and figure out where the plane could go down. Like, at this point, he's, he's worried that they're not going to make it. So he's, he's looking out the window to try to figure out where they could ditch the plane. Uh, because at this point, they're right over a town and there's a really busy highway that they have to get over to get to the runway. So the co-pilot's flying, the captain's looking where they can ditch. He sees like, a town. say ditch as in like, oh, we're going like, down. You're right, I shouldn't it. say ditch. Ditch is technically crashing in the water. He's trying to figure yeah. out where they can put the plane down, I guess is, is a better way to phrase that. Okay. So, and he, see, he looks out the window, he sees a town and a busy freeway. <laughs> Uh -huh. It's the A30 motorway. It runs right along Heathrow Airport. So, you know, the, the captain knows, like, none of this is good. Uh, there's, there's really no, no place where they can 
go down. And, and they know they're coming damage. down at this point. There's he's, like, yeah, he's pretty worried about it because the engines aren't responding at all. You know, they're oh. they're barely putting any power out, and uh, they're they're falling too fast. They're not going to make it to the runway. So the captain he considers raising the landing gear to try to reduce drag, but he knew that if he did that, the plane would impact the ground harder because he needs the gear down to take the brunt of the impact. Hmm. So his solution, which is absolutely, he, you know, he, I think he got a lot of praise for this. It was absolutely the right thing. Uh, he makes a split-second decision to reduce his flap setting because since they're about to land, their flaps are out just to give him a little more control uh, at low speed, generate a little more lift. So he reduces the flap setting from 30 degrees to 25 in order to try to reduce drag. But this, of course, like I said, also reduces lift. And this means that the plane will get to go a little further, but it's going to fall faster. Ah, so, right, so he's trying to get over the town and over the highway to try to get it onto the airport. It's almost like a weird sacrificial thing where it's like it's avoiding hitting all the, I don't know, civilians, right? But the people on the ground? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, well, this might be rougher for us, but it's safer overall. Yeah. And, he, and, and honestly, it might be safer for them, too, because if he you know, makes it onto the airport property, that's where emergency vehicles are. And, oh. you know, there's, there'd be a quicker response. Gotcha. So the captain declares an emergency to the tower a few seconds before landing on the grass about 890 feet short of runway 27 left. Uh, and if they did not reduce the flaps, it's very likely they would have ended up going down on that uh, A30 highway right there next to Heathrow. So they just hit, they were like going to the airport and they just hit the grass before the runway, like right, right. past the highway? Right. They barely clear the highway. They barely clear the fence for the airport. And uh, they hit the grass bef- before the runway starts. Could you imagine being in your car? <laughs> right. and, well, and it, might not, it might not have looked that unusual because they're probably used to planes coming in really low right there to land. Yeah, I guess so. You know, it hit 890 feet short of the runway. So, you know, it would have been a little lower than another plane. But if you were driving in your car, you probably wouldn't have noticed anything was unusual until you saw it hit the grass. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, luckily for them, uh, you know, it rains a lot in england you know it's kind of a stereotype in london that it's always rainy so you know the ground is soft and kind of muddy so it absorbs a lot of the impact oh so they you know they hit the grass and during the ground roll you know when they're rolling on the grass the nose gear collapses and the right main gear separates from the aircraft and penetrates the central fuel tank and into the cabin space and the left main gear was pushed up through the wing so the plane you know hits really hard the landing gear kind of comes up through the wings and into the cabin a little bit. And the plane continues to roll and it comes to a rest on the threshold markings at the start of the runway. So, you know, at the very beginning of the runway, there's like those lines. Uh-huh. Like that's where the plane ends up stuck coming to a stop. <laughs> so they were like, so, we made it to the <laughs> runway. <laughs> they barely, barely make it. They, they, they kind of uh, roll to the right. So they're not quite like lined up with the runway, but they're kind of on the runway. Okay. Uh, so... Fuel was leaking, but luckily it did not catch fire. And did, you said the the landing gear like shot into the cabin. Did it hit anyone? Uh, I'll get to that in just a second. Okay. I, I, I do. I want to. I want before we get to that. I want to praise the uh, the response time because rescue vehicles arrive at the wreck one minute and forty three seconds after they're summoned by the tower. Wow! So it's like they're there instantly, which is why you know they want to try to get onto airport property. So as far as the passengers on board, uh, 12 people on board suffered minor injuries and one person received a concussion and a broken leg and there were no fatalities. Wow. Uh, so yeah, the, uh, the, I've seen interviews with the, the captain where he talks about 
how uh, once they're shutting the plane down, they go through their procedure, that when he goes to leave the plane himself, he looks into the cabin expecting to see, uh, I think what he said was his estimate was he expected to see 20% of the passengers uh, dead in there. Oh my but he, you know, he looks into the cabin and there's nobody in there. It's empty because everybody survived and got out. Oh man, Could you, I couldn't imagine that being like not wanting to open the door because you're just expecting a bunch of bodies and being like oh god this is going to be bad yeah but you know uh, miraculously everyone uh survived with for the most part minor injuries yeah i mean a, w- one broken leg and a i mean a, a concussion, concussion is serious but like all things considered for a mm-hmm. plane crash that's pretty great yeah and 12 people with minor injuries considering what did i say there were 152 people on the yeah. plane so really really fortunate and uh, one thing I, I don't know if i noted this earlier i feel like i should say it now uh, the captain did note that as the plane was, you know, about to touch down, that there were stall warnings going off. So the plane was definitely going at a pretty low speed when it uh, when it did impact with the ground. When I say low speed, you know, it's, it was still it's still going over 100 miles an hour. Just low speed for a plane. Gotcha. I'm always looking for true crime podcasts that I can binge on. And a little while ago, I came across an amazing new one called Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. Literally flew through it. It's about an escort who goes missing in Long Island. And while searching for her, the police actually find the bodies of 11 other women and realize that they're dealing with a serial killer who's still on the loose today. Seven episodes have tons of great interviews with family, friends, cops, and a bunch of other people. It felt dark, but also really personal. Anyway, if you're on the hunt for a quality true crime podcast, check out Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, now. This is a really unusual situation, right? The It's, it's, it's bizarre that both engines would fail at the same time right before a landing. You know, they went through this whole mm-hmm. 10 and a half hour flight. Everything was fine. Then just literally feet from the airport, things go wrong. So initially there was speculation that there must have been some kind of electronic glitch that happened in the engine control systems as a possible cause for this simultaneous loss of power in both engines. Because yeah. again, it's extremely improbable that a plane would suffer dual engine failure at the same time. There was also theories about, you know, maybe there was a bird strike in both engines or some weird wind shear that forced the plane down. You say bird strike as in like they hit a bird? Or like right, like birds. birds go into the engines. Uh. Like remember um, that U.S. Airways flight with uh, mm. Sully where they land in the in the river? Yeah. Like that was a bird strike. Mm. Maybe we'll talk about that one in the future. I don't know. Uh, there, was, there was even a kind of wild conspiracy theory. And uh, I, I feel com- compelled to talk about it just to like throw out like all the realm of possibility that's investigated. There was this theory that it could have been the result of the prime minister's motorcade because Prime Minister Gordon Brown had just been dropped off at Heathrow Airport for a flight to China. So they thought that maybe his motorcade had some kind of electronic protection oh. that maybe caused a, a glitch with this plane's electronic system. Uh, obviously, they ruled that out. That was, that was not the case. But I just like wanted to throw out like another crazy possibility that people thought about like electromagnetic pulse like in the matrix that kills all the computers it's like they just use that Mm -hmm. but uh you know after they investigate for a few weeks and the suspicion starts to fall on the possibility of ice in the fuel which you probably guessed because i was talking about the temperature earlier ice in the fuel right Sorry, I thought you said lice. For <laughs> no, no, no. The planes, planes are surprisingly resilient to lice. We're talking about ice in the fuel. Sorry, that, I mean, that makes more, way more sense. But Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so the investigation is done by the Department for Transport's Air Accidents Investigation Branch, which is the AAIB, uh, along with participation from the National Transportation Safety Board from the United States, uh, Boeing, and Rolls-Royce. So within a few hours of the accident, the flight data recorder, the cockpit voice recorder, as well as the quick access recorder are recovered. So I'm going to talk about the quick access recorder in just a second. 
And all, all the recorders confirm what the crew told the investigators, which was the engines had not responded when the throttles were advanced during final approach. So I know we've talked about the flight data recorder before and the cockpit voice recorder, but uh, we're going to talk also about the quick access recorder for this mm-hmm. incident. I'm going to call it the QAR because it's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> okay. The QAR is designed to provide quick and easy access to raw flight data through like a USB drive or cellular network connection or the use of flash memory cards, right? Okay. It's used to sample data at a higher rate than the flight data recorder, but it's usually not required by a civil aviation authority on commercial flights, and it's not designed to survive an accident. Uh, in some incidents, like this one, they do survive, and they can give additional information beyond what the flight data recorder uh, gets. It's more uh, like diagnostics. It's more for the airline and for maintenance. It's just recording oh, okay. a, a ton of stuff, and just like that way they can, they can easily access things without interfering with the critical systems like the flight data recorder. Gotcha. So this is just like the just I'm a dude who's going to check on the plane. We'll see how everything's going. I plug this in. Okay, got it. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maintenance. Right. So the uh, the QAR was pioneered by the British European Airways in the 1960s uh, on the Hawkler Sidley Trident aircraft as a requirement to prove the safety of the plane's auto land system. And the QAR is actually now carried on all British Airways aircraft. So luckily for them, this, this was a British Airways aircraft. The plane was largely intact. Uh, so they were able to pull the QAR to get even more information than they normally would be able to pull. In a special bulletin on February 18th, 2008, the AIB noted evidence that cavitation had taken place in both high-pressure fuel pumps. So cavitation is a phenomenon in which rapid changes of pressure in a liquid lead to the formation of small vapor-filled cavities in places where pressure is relatively low. So these cavities caused by cavitation can collapse and generate a small shock wave that can cause surface fatigue and stress on metal surfaces. So the fact that there was cavitation happening could be indicative of a restriction in the fuel supply or an excess aeration of the fuel. So basically this cavitation indicated that the fuel supply may have been diminished or there may have been excess air, uh, like air pockets in the fuel. And that could have happened because of temperature variances, like it changing temperature really fast. Is that what you're saying? It's just unusual. I don't think they said exactly why at this point. Uh, we will get to that in a little bit, but it's just an unusual phenomenon that should not be happening at this point. So then a couple months later, on May 12, 2008, the AAIB issued another statement saying the reduction in thrust on both engines was a result of reduced fuel flow. So basically, they say the cavitation could be caused by a couple of things, and a couple months later, they say, oh, there was definitely reduced fuel flow. They confirmed that the fuel was good quality and that it did not freeze, and they started investigating what caused low pressure at the pumps? So yeah, it's like the fuel was there. It wasn't cold, too cold. It just wasn't being pumped to the engines. Is that what you're saying? Like right. Just- they, they they never the fuel never reached a freezing point, but fuel was still restricted. There was low pressure at the fuel pumps. Like there was plenty of fuel in the tanks. It just wasn't getting to the fuel pumps for some reason. Hmm. On September 4th, they stated the investigation has shown that fuel to both engines was restricted, most probably due to ice within the fuel feed system. The ice was likely to have formed from water that occurred naturally in the fuel whilst the aircraft operated for a long period with low fuel flows in an unusually cold environment, although the plane was operated within the certified operational envelope at all times. So the fu- so they have a, a thing to measure the fuel in the tank, but what happened is it froze in the pump? So what happened was the fuel never froze. The fuel, we, the, there was never, the it never, the, right, it never reached a point where the the fuel froze. But there's water, a little bit of water in the fuel, and that's normal. 
Water can exist as an impurity in jet fuel up to around 100 parts per million. This water, this tiny amount of water that was in the fuel uh, did freeze. Obviously, it's way below the freezing point of water. And ice began to adhere inside the fuel lines, but it didn't have an effect on the flight until they began their approach into Heathrow. Because basically, they were flying you know, at cruising altitude for so long without any increased demand. So it's like just a very low amount of fuel was going through the line and it there was no effect. It didn't. Yeah, because they didn't need a lot of fuel because they were just kind of like. Right, they're cruising. Yeah. And that's why there was no effect at that time until they needed more engine power as they're coming into land. So ice began to adhere inside the fuel lines. And, you know, as they're descending, coming down, the temperature began to rise and they, you know, increased the fuel flow as they uh, approached. And it started to melt the ice and release it back into the fuel, which formed a slush. And this slush flowed up through the fuel line into the fuel oil heat exchanger and then froze again, causing a restriction in fuel flow. So I'm going to talk about the fuel oil heat exchanger here because this is an important part of this. So the fuel oil heat exchanger consists of uh, about 1,200 small diameter steel tubes that look like a honeycomb. So fuel comes in and flows through these tubes while hot engine oil circulates around the outside of the tubes. And what this part is does is it's designed to warm the fuel to prevent ice from reaching other engine components. And at the same time, it also cools the engine oil. So they're using the, the fact that the fuel is cold to cool down the oil and then using the heat of the oil to warm up the fuel to make sure it's not frozen. Gotcha. It, it looks just like a honeycomb. It's like a bunch of small uh, steel tubes and the outer ring is where the uh, oil is. So the way things played out, it seemed like the conditions just happened to be right for ice and slush to build up and block those little tubes. So like the whole system designed to regulate the temperature of the fuel and oil just got gummed up with slush. Yeah, and it's, it's really bizarre because like the AAIB stated in their uh, report was the plane was operated within the acceptable parameters. The, mm. and nothing was violated. Everything was done by the books. They, this was just an extremely un. How many times have we said this? <laughs> this was just an extremely unusual set of circumstances that caused this precise thing to happen. So finally, two years later, or a little over two years later, on February 9th, twenty ten, the AAIB concluded that thrust was reduced due to restricted fuel flow and indicated some probable cause factors that led to these restrictions. First of all, ice had formed within the fuel system released and caused a restriction to the engine at the face of the fuel oil heat exchanger on both engines. Second, ice had formed within the fuel system from water that occurred naturally in the fuel while the aircraft operated with low fuel flows over a long period and the localized fuel temperatures were in the area described as, quote, the sticky range. The sticky range is between about negative 5 Celsius and negative 20 Celsius, which is between 23 Fahrenheit and negative 4 Fahrenheit. And this is a range of temperature where ice will adhere to its surroundings. So like, it's mm. like a temperature range where ice becomes sticky. That's why they call it the sticky range. Third, the fuel oil heat exchanger was compliant with all certification requirements, but was shown to be susceptible to restriction when presented with soft ice in a high concentration with a fuel temperature below negative 10 Celsius or 14 Fahrenheit and a fuel flow above flight idle. And last, certification requirements did not take into account uh, this phenomenon as the risk was unrecognized at the time. So it's kind of hard to describe, but I keep talking about this fuel oil heat exchanger, right? Im imagine this honeycomb. Mm -hmm. So think about all those, like I said, there's like 1,200 little steel tubes where the fuel goes through. Those little steel tubes stick out just a little bit from the uh, the ring where the oil goes around them. Okay. It's, it's, it's a tiny amount, like a couple millimeters maybe. Yeah. 
since they were a little removed from the warmth of the oil, the ice was able to jam up right there in that point. Before they enter? Bef- right before it got to where there was more warmth from the oil. Gotcha. So that, that's why uh, this happened. And it, like, like they said, it just so happened that there was ice. The temperature was just right. They were in that sticky range where, and then they increased the fuel flow at this moment, which f- loosened up all the sticky ice and then shoved it all up there and gummed up the uh, fuel oil heat exchanger so that even though the throttle was requesting more f- fuel, none was getting through because the, the slush had uh, jammed it all up. Man. So the AAIB made two safety recommendations uh, that are separate from the ice issue. So during the study of the crashworthiness of the aircraft, they observed that the main attachment point of the main landing gear was the rear spar of the aircraft's wing, as well as the rear wall of the main fuel tanks, which caused the rupture when they crashed. So they recommended to Boeing that they redesign the landing gear attachment to reduce the likelihood of fuel loss in similar circumstances, because this would have been way worse if fuel had come out and then there was a fire. Yeah, yeah, because you said that, yeah, there was a leaking fuel and it was Mm -hmm. just... So, you know, they uh, advised Boeing to redesign it. And the second thing was the AIB noted that the fire extinguisher handles had been manually deployed by the crew before the fuel shutoff switches. So fire extinguisher handles have the effect of cutting off power to the fuel switches, meaning that fuel continues to flow. Uh, They stated this was not causal to the accident, but could have had serious consequences in the event of a fire. So they recommended Boeing should notify all 777 operators uh, the necessity to operate fuel control switch to cut off before they operate the fire handle. So basically, it's just the checklist and the process that the pilots go through after a crash. Okay, so if I get this right, if you grab a fire extinguisher, the plane shuts off all power? Yeah, so it's not if you grab a fire extinguisher. There's handles that the pilots pull in the cockpit. Oh, okay. And they pull a fire extinguisher handle. In case the engines are on fire, these are the, you know, the handles that they pull to extinguish them. And when they pull those, it cuts off power to the fuel switches. So fuel would have continued to flow. So, so they, they just needed to reverse that, turn off the fuel supply and then hit the, the fire extinguisher. Right. So they just, you know, they just recommended Boeing should let all the, the 777 operators know that they need to follow that correct order. And there's checklists for everything, right? That's what, yeah. that's what we've learned. There's even a, yeah. if once you crash land, this is your checklist. So um, after this is all said and done, uh, Captain Burkhill and First Officer Coward were grounded for a month and they were assessed for PTSD. And five months after the accident, Burkhill flew again, but, you know, he remained haunted by this incident. And in August 2009, he took a voluntary redundancy from British Airways. And he wrote a book called 30 Seconds to Impact. Mm. Uh, In 2010, he actually rejoined British Airways, stating that it's an honor and a privilege to be returning to the airline. And all 16 crew members were awarded the British Airways Safety Medal. And on December 11th, 2008, they received the President's Award from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Hmm. Well, good for them. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they nailed it. Well, I mean, they, yeah, they did everything right. So, I mean, this slush up, did anything get changed mechanically so that it wouldn't happen? Or was it just such a bizarre, yes. perfect storm? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that you, uh, you asked that. So it turns out this wasn't the only time that this happened. On November 26th of 2008, a very similar incident happened mid-flight with a Delta flight, uh, Delta Airlines Flight 18. It was flying from Shanghai to Atlanta, uh, but it was resolved before anything happened. They were at cruising altitude, and uh, if I remember that one correctly, they noticed something was wrong. They lowered the power on their engines and then increased the throttle, and the problem went away. They were at cruising altitude. They had plenty of time to try to figure it out. It ended up not being a big deal, but it did happen again. Uh, and then in May of 2009, an Airbus A330, with, uh, also with Rolls-Royce engines, had a similar incident. It, it, it was still a very rare thing, but in response to this, Rolls-Royce redesigned that fuel oil heat exchanger uh, to be sent in service by March 2010. 
and the engines were fitted um, within six months of certification. All Rolls-Royce did was they removed that little gap, that little couple of millimeters that stuck up. Yeah. The, they were just so that the uh, those little pipes were flush with the in the fuel oil heat exchanger, uh, which hopefully has fixed the problem. Man, it's just a tiny little thing that yeah. has like huge impact. All, yeah, and and it's, and it's just like the right temperature for the right amount of time and the right I don't know like power needed at the engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there were some other things that were done as well. Uh, Boeing also reduced the recommended time that triple seven should be uh, below negative ten Celsius hmm. or fourteen Fahrenheit. Uh, before uh, it was three hours, they reduced that time down to two hours. Okay. And they also started using uh, an additive called fuel system icing inhibitor, uh, which was approved to be used, and it prevents water freezing at temperatures down to negative 40 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit. It's actually the same. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's an additive that some militaries have used, but commercial aviation really doesn't use. So those solutions, along with you know fuel heaters and this redesigned fuel oil heat exchange, hopefully prevents situations like this from happening again in the future. After this was all done, the plane itself was assessed for damages, and uh, it was actually determined to be beyond repair. So this was the first 777 hull loss in history. And the 777 was introduced into service in June of 95. You know, this incident happened in January of 2008. So it went, you know, what, 13 years before they had their first hull loss. And wow. the plane itself was scrapped in uh, spring of 2009. Man, that's crazy because some of the other crashes that we talked about, the planes go on to work for like, 10 years or something oh right yeah like and we like, like we did the gimli glider i think that yeah. one went on for 25 years after it yeah. crashed and that one seemed crazier than this is like oh they were just really short of the runway and that well, was this the- one I, the plane definitely took more damage here the gimli glider the landing gear held up and you know the nose slid along the uh, the runway this one you know landing gear came up and punctured mm. through wings and the plane slid through grass so the the passengers right Mm-hmm. They had some injuries. The one person like broke their leg. If it was one of those things where everyone, like the crew, performed exactly as they should have, and it wasn't a known issue, like a negligence or something from the the airline, who is there anyone that's to blame? Or it's like, say, you know, that guy who broke his leg and had a concussion. If he was like, I want to sue someone who. I, get, I just, I, I just, I just want to point out to our listeners that Chris doesn't see my talking points or scripts ahead of time <laughs> because because you just like segued perfectly into the next thing I had here to talk okay. about. So thank you for that, Chris. Uh-huh. So yeah, actually uh, in November of 2009, 10 passengers sued Boeing and the circuit court of Cook County in Illinois here in the United States. And it was reported that each plaintiff could receive up to a million dollars in compensation because the lawsuit alleged that the design of the aircraft was defective and dangerous and that Boeing breached their duty of care. Ultimately, the claims were settled out of court in 2012. So I don't know what the final result of that was. But there was a lawsuit that did get settled. So uh, you're right. Everything was done according by the book the way it should have been. But I, the, the crux of this lawsuit was that the design was defective, and that, which led to improper procedures. So they probably got some money, but not as much as if it had been negligence. Or right. I guess, or like real negligence. It just sounded like, yeah, it's a technological Right, there was, like a, there was a design flaw. Yeah. And again, that was something that happened only in very strange circumstances. Hmm. So um, that's about it. And uh, I'm going to post, make sure you follow uh, at BlockBoxDownPod on Twitter and Instagram, because I'm going to post some photos of this incident there, because uh, there's some really dramatic photos of the plane just short of the runway uh, at Heathrow. Yeah, you uh, just... So you really put it in perspective. Gus just sent me a picture of it, and it's it's 
wild. <laughs> it's really strange to see. Like you can barely tell that something's wrong. You, aside from the giant tire tracks cut out in the grass right leading up to the runway. Yeah. So uh, that's it. This I, I think it's a, a really interesting uh, incident, and I'm glad that for the most part everyone got off safely. That no one was killed or seriously yeah. injured. And uh, again, like we always say, it's like one of those things that leads to further refinements in safety and procedures to make sure that you know everyone is as safe as possible when they travel by plane. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you like the podcast, I highly recommend you to give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend to subscribe if you think that they might be interested as well. Yeah. Post it on Facebook or Twitter or yeah. something. All of them. All of them. <laughs> tell people. Yeah. Tell them. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks. If you can't get enough of me and Chris talking about airplanes, you should go to roosterteeth.com Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. where we uh, play video games involving planes, airports, anything related to aviation, and uh, we talk about whatever's on our minds. So just go to roosterteeth.com 11 a.m. Central Time on Thursdays to check out our uh, gameplay live streams.